and welcome to episode 14 of Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States. I'm Tim. I'm Laval. I'm Carlo. Thank you to our listeners for joining us once again for what we hope will be another entertaining episode of Crew Shaken. How's it going, guys? Pretty good. I've gotten quite a bit of gaming in since we last recorded. Um, the last time I, we, we was recording, I was talking about all the gaming I've got. I've got, I had gotten in, but I've gotten even more in. Good. A lot of 40 gay going on. Very consistent. The game. <laughs> so why don't we jump right in with that stuff? Let's start with uh, hobby progress, games played, purchases made, etc., and so on. Lavelle, why don't you kick us off? I have been. Okay. Well. Uh, <laughs> all right, y'all. Uh-oh. So I've made some purchases. <laughs> oh. Mistakes were made. Uh-oh. I, don't... Oh, no. I, I purchased <laughs> the, the Forge World set. I split a box set with somebody. Wait, hold on. I'm... I think we just need to like rename this segment. I've made some purchases. <laughs> it's just like a, whole, it's made... like a Lavelle segment. <laughs> yep. It's dedicated to Lavelle. I've made some purchases. I've made some don't purchases. Judge, don't Mistakes judge me have been for made. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. All right, all right. Continue. There you go. I, I, I played the Forge. Uh, I, I bought the, uh, the Forge World set, and I actually haven't started putting them together. I'm actually going to buy a second Forge World set before I start putting those together. I played a lot with the Necron since the new Codex dropped, <clears throat> and I really like what I've been playing with. I, a lot of flexibility. Um, the you know you read the Codex and you you go through it and everything, but once I started playing with it, I started realizing I wanted to flesh out more of the units that I have. I got a huge army, but I don't have depth in some of the units, and so that's what made me go out and go in that direction. And you know, as we and we're going to talk about a little bit about this later. Um, as we prepare for the upcoming Nova event, um, I, I don't know which way I'm going, but I've, I've also started planning out some additional purchases for my Custodes Army. Excellent. And what about games played? You said you've been getting quite a bit of gaming in. Any highlights that you want to share with us? I played, um, this was after, we'll talk about the FAQ a little later. I played in a tournament um, after the FAQ drop with my Custodes Army, and it made a really, really big difference. I was surprised at the impact that it had. The rule regarding the um, the usage of the what is it the assassins and the sisters of uh, silence really had a great impact in my my playing. It allowed me to build a really good army that was really really effective, and the limitation on the other armies and the way it freed me up really made a difference. I had a really good game that that turn. Excellent. We'll talk about the specifics of that when we get to the FAQ section, but it's good to hear that it impacted the uh, the balance in your favor in, 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 a, in, a, in a sense. I played a lot of games. I've also practiced a lot more games. I wasn't really excited. I never got excited at, at 40K at the 1,000-point level, but I've been playing a lot of games at the 1,000-point level and having a, a really enjoyable time. A lot of the Maelstrom of War games, um, they really do play well at the 1,000-point level, and I've been having a good time playing those. It requires you to make harder decisions on what you want to bring to the table. Or like the 2,000 point lets you bring like the frivolous toys that, you know, you might not normally include in your list. And I feel like 1,000 points is that perfect level where it's, where it's like, okay, you can't over, you can't like spam something and you can't um, overly concentrate points into a lot of really big models. Like you kind of have to balance it, which I think that what, what is one of the things that makes it so enjoyable. Carlos said something that is really, really important. At the 1,000 point level, you can really see the value of the units in your army. 
as you make those trade-offs and you get to see how they perform, if a unit can perform well at the 1,000 point level, it can, if it can contribute and pull its weight, it can do. That means it's going to pull its weight at the 2,000 point level. I played 1,000 point level at the um, for both my Custodes Army, and it really opened my eyes to that um, the Terminator. And I have to. I'm sorry, not the term. Yeah, the uh, the Alaris Captain and Terminator armor. Um, which I really discounted before that. And it also helped me really evaluate that um, Dreadnought, which I'm really looking at suspiciously. And I played the, um, at the thousand point level, I played my Necron army with a total assault army, which is something I never really did before. I usually like a shooting army, but I played an assault army and I was really, really surprised at the 1000 point level, how the little scarab swarms really pulled their weight. And it helped me see that I had been playing them, uh, you, you know, I had been playing them effectively enough at the larger game level. Do you remember your list? Like, what are some highlights from that list that you really liked? Um, I, I, I had seven um, Scarab Swarms, and one um, had a unit of three, the other had a unit of four. But they got in a base contact with a Carnifex. Oh. It was a shooting Carnifex. And, you know, he, he just didn't have enough attacks to eliminate them. Yeah, and you know, I had the the stratagem where I blew one up, did three mortal wounds. He stomp, stomp, he stomp, 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 did some damage, but you know, he just couldn't eliminate enough of them and tied them up for two turns, and that's a lot. Because right behind them, as soon as he got rid of them, the other four, the other four swarmed right back into him. Carlo, back to your hobby progress. So I got around the painting the Zorlocks. Oh, cool. And uh, you know, I feel like on like I've been listening to a lot of other uh, 40k podcasts recently too, and. I think every 40 k podcast, a lot of people, it seems like they're all really great painters. But I want to give some hope to listeners out there. There are terrible painters on 40k podcasts, <laughs> and you're listening to one right now. Because I chose to do like Death Guard Green with what was it? Oh God, it was like Death Guard Green, and then some like Mephiston Red with some uh, of the the Gene Stealer Purple over the top of it, thinly painted. And then, like, a yellow headband on my Warlock guys, and they came out real fugly. <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> I haven't heard fugly in a long time. Yeah, wow. And I don't think you put a photo of them up on our Instagram, so I'm going to ask you to do that for our listeners' enjoyment. Um, they will be uh, shockingly bad. Okay. And uh, encourage our listeners to not look at our, at our Instagram anymore. But sure, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. That's good. Um, any other purchases or uh, games played? Because you're still you're doing the um, Necromunda tournament, yes? Yeah, it's a league. And uh, I played a few games. Uh, we played a... Uh, so I played a game against... My first game was against Ian. Uh, that was a fun game. Um, I was behind most of the game, and I came, uh, came around for the win. Um, he was playing uh, Delac. House the lack that he was using a few. Uh, so in that game, he had a few uh, grenade launchers, which are really good. This edition, like in in Necromunda now, so like when you activate, it's it's uh, alternating activation. Uh, the leaders can activate up to two other guys with them, almost like if you're familiar with Infinity Rules, if you have like a fire team or something like that, you activate a few guys together and they can act together. It's kind of similar to that. Um, so like when you activate your leader and he goes and then he does his thing and then you activate a guy with him and that guy goes, does his thing. So you activate one at a time, but still together in a group within the same turn order. So he had his leader with like some of the grenade launchers. So he was like really kind of able to 
pin me a lot because like I had a couple of my guys grouped up because I had my leader with an ability that allows him to activate one more additional guy so he can activate three others. So I had them bunched up. So he hit me with a grenade like right away and everybody just got pinned. And then like, <laughs> so, but um, eventually I made my way across the board and kind of shot him up. That's one of those games. I think Necromunda is fun because it's one of those games where it can easily turn around really quickly. Whereas in 40K, like once you start mop, like when one player starts mopping up another player off the table, like you could see that the game is kind of, uh, you, you know, it slowly declines over time, right? Like uh, some, like this person is just getting wiped off the table. Where in Necromunda, it's easy to turn that around and force somebody to bottle test out. What, what are some of the missions like that you're playing in the league? What, what are some of the objectives, I should ask? Um, so in the league, they uh, uh, the two guys running it built a board with hexes on it. So we start out in a hex on the edge of the table and we work our way in by gaining turf through the missions we played. And we don't always gain turf every game we play. So it's, it's on a roll of a, like a four up at the end of the game. Um, and that turf allows us to earn extra cash. I think at the end of the game and it allows us to, uh, we could build buildings on that turf, like uh, manufacturing plants and stuff like that. I think that's like a homebrew rule from Alex, if I'm not mistaken. I I haven't read all the way through the rulebook, so we're still playing a little bit incorrectly. Like, we just found out that those grenade launchers I was just talking about, you need to roll an ammo check every time you shoot it, which is a big deal. You know, there are certain things that we haven't been playing correctly, but, I mean, it's going to be like a 12-week a campaign or something like that, so... I'm sure by the end of it, we'll know uh, like at least 25% of the rules. So, with, 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 with 12 weeks, yeah. you, you, have, you, have, you have some time to work out the kinks over 12 weeks. Yeah. 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 Cool. And how many, uh, how many games can you get in in an evening? Uh, it's So at first, because you're learning the rules, uh, my first game took about two hours. Uh, the next game I played after, after that took about, I think, an hour and a half. So I think it's slowly – it's kind of going to get to a point where it's like Shadow War where you could get a game in, in like 45 minutes or so. And it also depends like how many guys you have because a lot of gangs, you know, in, in, ne- in Necromunda, it depends on the mission you're playing. Like some missions only allow you to take a certain number of guys. So if you're playing a um, – I forget what the mission is called, a standoff or something like that. That's like the regular mission where you take your whole gang. Uh you get to take everybody, but if you roll high on the chart or low on the chart, I think it is, you you have to play a mission where you might only get, like, five guys. So you have to be a little bit more tactical about it. And your opponent could get more guys than you. Other than that, uh, painted those guys up. Got those Arena Rex guys built that I picked up uh, that you uh, actually ordered for us, right? Nice, yep. I'm um, looking at them right now. Got to get them painted soon. In May, uh, we're going to Burke Spring Assault. Are you going to that this year, yes. by the way? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm going to play in the Thousand Point Narrative, and I was thinking I still have that, that Stormfang gunship for oh, yeah. the uh, Stormwolf, remember? Yeah. yeah. I think in the next couple weeks, while now you know I'm moving in like 15 days, right? Monica and I bought a house. We finally, we're closing on it. We're going to move. So in the next two weeks, I have to somehow figure out how to pack my entire house and build and paint the storm wolf oh you could do it for this narrative <laughs> yeah just just make so. your airbrush the last thing you put in a box <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we'll see how that happens but uh that's i'm planning on bringing that so i'll just tell everybody my list because it's not like it's a big secret yeah do it. i'm gonna go two wolf lords with thunder hammers and storm shields on thunder wolves so it's gonna be a battalion because in in uh 
this narrative, you, you're only allowed to either bring a patrol detachment or a battalion detachment. Last year in this slot, they ran a thousand point narrative that was Highlander, which I really enjoyed. So you could only bring one of any type of unit. But this year, they're just doing the battalion. And since battalions get five CP now, according to the new fact, which we'll talk about later, uh, I decided to go with that instead of a patrol. So I'm going to bring the two Wolf Lords, Thunderhammer, Storm Shields. I'm going to bring three packs of Blood Claws, five man. Uh, so 15 guys, and they're like kind of close quarters. I'm going to bring a squad of five Wolf in, and then I'm going to bring this, uh, the Storm Wolf. So the Blood Claws are going to start on the board, and the Storm Wolf. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to start either one or both Wolf Lords on the board, and then like outflank the Wolf in or something. I don't know yet. I got to look at it and make sure. I got to make sure that I don't get shot off the table turn ones with the blood claws in the transport. Right. Though. So. Right. Um, last year, was it on four by four tables? I forget. I think yeah, it was. It was yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, cool. Cool. That was fun last year when it was all Highlander. That was a good time. It was a good day. Oh, yeah. I really love that. The only thing I'm skeptical of this year is the fact that there's not going to be a bar there because it's in a church. But I didn't realize it was a different venue. Yeah, it's not at uh, Johnny's. That Roadhouse. Or... Yeah, that place is yeah. cool. Hmm. Yeah, that place is awesome. But, uh, I mean, those guys put on a great tournament, so I don't think it'll change it much. But I do love gin and tonics, so, as, as our listeners well know. We'll see how, see how we can sneak those in, yeah. So, um, Lavelle, are you coming to that, by the way? I wanted to ask you. You know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't planning on it, but, you know, as you were talking, I started building a list. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I ordered three boxes of custodies online. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's that was really uncalled for. <laughs> Not cool. Not cool. And Tempt. we're here. <laughs> I didn't know you could go puff 40k stuff. <laughs> My hobby progress since last we spoke. I built and primed uh some old terminators for a game against Brian, which was which was good. I I liked playing those terminators. But the first time I had ever played terminators, if you can believe that. I had never ever played with terminators before really yeah it was which was it was great i had i had them for a while i just never built them they're from the uh, they're old they're from uh, that assault on black reach box set that i got so the poses are kind of just like they're just kind of standing there with you know a bolter and a what and a power fist yeah exactly they're just kind of standing yeah. there but uh but they're cool they're, they were fun to play um so i got them primed at least and built and ready to play just uh just got a really start painting painting them how they uh how they play they did really well yeah i brought them um i think i just teleported them in at some point and uh yeah they 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 got their points back the game quickly went south for me i was rolling really i rolled at one point i rolled four ones at the same time when i was doing some saves and after that it all kind of went downhill i also took my um my Grav Centurions, which was awesome, and I think it was four cover. It was four saves I, I whiffed for them, four ones in a row, and that, that was oh no, that hurt. Yeah, because they were it was a fifteen hundred point game, and you know the Centurions are not a cheap investment, so they they went a little too fast. But uh, did you take them in your um, Storm Raven, like you did for Nova? No, I just I put them in a building. We were playing the game was cool. I'll start, I'll talk about the game quick. We were using the open war deck. And the mission was after the at the third turn, a meteor would strike the ground, or there would be some kind of satellite that would crash, and then whoever was closest to that satellite at the end of turn five won. But the um, the trick to the game was at the beginning of each player turn, you could roll to see if there was a um, like an orbital bombardment of meteorites. 
that would do uh, mortal wounds to wherever it hit, you know? And that, that went off that went off a number of times, which is really cool. Is this a mission out of the rulebook? It's a mission from the Open War deck of cards. Oh, the Open War deck. Yes. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. It was a lot of fun to play. It wound up being that I could I didn't need to move my Centurions very far because of the... Uh, the satellite crashed in my deployment zone, so I just tried to bubble wrap it as much as possible at the end of the third turn, um, and I just kept them in cover nearby. We had a lot of ruined buildings on the on the on the table, so I just kept them in cover as long as I could. But uh, you know, Brian's a really good player. He bought a good list. He brought he brought the um the repulsor, Primaris tank transport. That repulsor is nasty. It the is hover tank. So, it is so mean. It is yeah. so mean. It just does not stop shooting. You gotta just like like put that. Thing down. It is turn it's, one. It, absolutely. Gotta, like, I did not yeah. realize how bad it was going to be. And in fact, turn one, it did a lot of shooting. But then Brian realized he had forgotten it had two more guns on it. So like <laughs> the rest of the game, it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's really a threat, as it turns out. That thing oh, I was so, thirty-seven heavy bolters. It was on so yeah. mean. It was so mean. And because it, because it's a repulsor, it's minus two to your charge when you try to charge it, because of the backwash from the gravity field underneath it. So to even get close to it, to like try to tie it up in some fashion, is really difficult because it's minus two on the charge. It's got a lot of great little weird rules, and it was fun to play against. It was, it yeah, was, and then it was when mean. You, you can't tie it up because it has flies, so it can right. just fall back and shoot at you. It was, it was so. ugly. It was pretty ugly, yeah. If you're a Space Marine player, you need to get one of those. It's yeah, I wish I, wish I liked the model more. I really wish I liked the... Well, you know I don't like the Primaris stuff, but I really wish I liked the Primaris, the, um, the Repulsor model more. I just, I'm just not into it, yeah. Is it repulsive to you? It is repulsive to me, actually. Yes, <laughs> it repulses me. Did I do? It repulses me. Yeah. I was missing a. Uh, so I'm trying to get into 30k, as you know. I was missing one of the rule books that I need. You need a lot of rule books to play 30k, as it turns out. I was missing the Age of Darkness Legions book, so I found one on eBay. I had some eBay bucks to spend. Um, love those eBay bucks. Uh, so I got the uh, Legions book, which I actually really... I've, I've read it. I've, I've really enjoyed reading it. So it's basically Legions broken down by unit with a little story about each unit, what it, what everything can do, and all of the special rules that each Legion kind of has at its disposal. And I, I think it's awesome. There's a lot of great backstory. There's a lot of... All the special rules in 30K have a wonderful flavor to them. Like, you can do a lot of things that are super unique to each of the uh, Space Marine, both loyal and traitor um, legions, you know, and they, I'm, I'm really getting a kick out of that, and I, I have filled up, you know how sometimes you go to the Forge World site, and you just kind of fill up a cart for the fun of it, and then you kind of <laughs> kind of close the window, and then you kind of, the next day you go back, you put a little bit more in that cart, and you save it as a list, and then, so I've been doing that for like a week straight. Um, I, have, I have a good sense of what I need to buy for my Emperor's Children army. I just have yet to actually go through the full checkout process. Oh, yeah. um, I forgot about you. Because yeah, apparently I... the checkout process requires actual money. That one, that's the part <laughs> where you have to, that's the part where they take they take your funds and they put them with their funds. And that's the part that I'm having trouble actually committing to. That's the funny thing about Forge World because you go like, oh, I've put five units in my cart. Oh, it's fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I don't really need that. It's a thousand pounds. Oh, geez. But it's when you when you want to start like a nice thirty k army, it's really easy. I mean, I did have I had eight hundred pounds worth of Emperor's Children in my cart. Yeah, this morning, as a matter of fact, which is you know like thirteen hundred bucks worth of resin. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe I'll hit that button someday. But I'll start small. You know, I'll, I'll get like um in my list so far, I have thirty. Uh, you know, just the 30 um, trader marines with the, you know, the custom heads and the 
the torsos and whatnot that you can get from Fort World for Emperor's Children. Uh, the Palatine Blades, which are like those sword guys with the spears, those are awesome. A bunch of those. The Phoenix Terminators, which are like really cool looking Terminators with these great beaky kind of winged helms. They're really cool looking. And uh, the Cacophony, those guys with the sound weapons and all that stuff. So I'm gonna eventually I'll get I'll start getting that nice. stuff. I'll start getting that stuff as I uh, as you my gotta ship get some comes old in. Old noise marines, dude. Like the like the ones that have the the axe. You know, I, yeah, I see. This. I see those on eBay every now and again, but I just, I just can't get into it. I just can't, those those sculpts are just. I mean, they're they're really kind of neat, but I don't know. Kind of want to do a fresh. Like I want to. I kind of want to do a, like a really sexy 30k army. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm gonna do it really nice. Additionally, I bought uh, I bought two um, 40k property games that are not miniatures games necessarily. I bought this card game called uh, Space Hulk Death Angel. It was out a number of years ago, and they stopped making it. It was a Fantasy Flight game. It's a card game. Um, it is a, like it's basically a solitaire game. You can play it with other people, but it's really good uh, as a solo game. Um, and it's just like the Space Hulk, the big board game with all the miniatures. It's very, very similar. It's a very uh, similar level of kind of tension, a very similar kind of the odds are against you the whole time kind of feel to it. I've been getting a kick out of that. just got that a few days ago. And I also got the Relic board game which is a fantasy flight game based on another fantasy setting game called Talisman, but this is like a really a 40k heavy one called Relic. It looks really good. It's got these little busts of all of the characters in the game, and you put them on these little kind of, you put them on top of these little meeples, and that's kind of the player character. It's this bust kind of thing, which I think would be really cool to paint up. Um, and there's a lot of lot of cool rules in there, but the mechanic is, looks relatively uh, straightforward, so it should be easy to pick up with anybody and and play. It looks it looks pretty cool. So I was glad to get those two things. Those were two other, you know, just used game purchases that I found recently. Is it like a is it reminiscent of like the relic mission in 40k? Do you have to like pick it up is. a relic exactly. and run it around somewhere? Exactly okay. right. You have to go to the, the the board. Kind of works in a spiral. It's like a large rectangular spiral shape. So all the players start on the outside of that spiral. You work your way in towards the center. You do battle with a. Like, there's a number of different uh, enemies that kind of go in that center space that you have to defeat, and then you get the relic, and then you have to take the relic out of the center to a different part of the board to kind of uh, put it safely back in your particular, you know, organization's hands. I think there's, you can play a commissar, you can play a space marine, you can play a uh, tech priest. There's a number of, you know, imperial forces at work. They're, they're so all it, after the so relic. So it's, it's cooperative, then? It's not cooperative. I don't think it's cooperative, no, because you're trying to get it first, Yeah. But you fight against NPCs. You yes. Fight each other. Yes. Okay. That's you, correct. You're still trying to get the relic. Now, okay. I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm going to go ahead and break my silence. I do own both of those games. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, so <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of the Death Angel card game? I do like the Death Angel card game. I like both of those games. Um, I got them when, they, when, they, when, when Fantasy Flight first acquired the, um, the 40K property, um, the license, rather, and they started putting the games out. I really... I started. I can't. I can't remember where. I, I think it might have been a place in in Delaware called Between Books that closed, and I think they just reopened. But he had a lot of the games on sale, and I picked up quite a few from there. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Am, am I am I am I pretty accurate in my description of Relic? That's kind of how it works, yeah. right? That that's the vibe and, I got from the directions. And neither one of those games are really, really um, that are really long games either, and they're really good. When I got those games, I was introducing my sons, Justin and the Kill, to the 40K universe. And it was a way for me to kind of get them a little bit acclimated to the universe early on. And it was really, really good. I liked it, those games for really quick games. Good, good. Yeah, I look forward to trying Relic. It looks like a neat, uh, 
the the card art and the board looks really cool, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of psyched about that one. Yeah. Um, I also finished painting uh, for Shadespire. I know everybody's tired of me here talking about Shadespire, but I finished painting the um, the undead, the shades, the death rattle warband. I just finished those today. Um, I've been getting into using this um, technical paint from Army Painter called Glistening Blood. I've been putting it on the edge of a brush Ooh. and kind of flicking it onto the model and like just shooting air through the airbrush to kind of splatter it all over stuff. And I got some really good. It looks it looks really good. The, 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 it goes on the model really heavy, and then uh, it, it splatters both very fine and very. It's very blood-like in how it's 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 thick, and it, uh, it it makes the models look really cool. It adds just an extra dash of gross to. Uh, what really should be a pretty gross, you know, it's a pretty bloody game. So I've been, I've been enjoying that. I put used that on both the, uh, the death rattle, and uh, those corn uh, guys that come with the base game, and uh, I was really happy with the results. I was into it. Yeah. How do you, how do you rate that against uh, Blood for the Blood God from GW? I have never used Blood for the Blood God. It's probably basically the same thing. It looks, uh, it, from what I see, just looking at Blood for the Blood God in the uh, pot, uh, Glistening Blood is brighter. Mm. It's a little, it's just, it's a little bit more like the, like stage blood red. As I think Blood for the Blood God is a little richer, a little darker, a little more realistic, maybe. But for a game like Shadespire, it's just like a pop of red on an otherwise kind of cold, dead. Base, do you know what I mean? And the the, the Death Rattle Warband is like you know they're just skeletons, so they're it's the mute. The tones are very muted, but with that hit of red, it really it really draws your eye in, in a nice way. I was really I'm stoked about that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a nice little. Uh, it's touch. cool. Yeah, and uh, yeah, in the next couple of weeks, I really hope to get those uh, Terminators finished to uh, you know kind of start using with my iron hands very frequently. I have another uh, another dreadnought to build. It, again, it was from that uh, Assault on Black Reach box set, so it's one of those smaller. Older dreadnoughts, but uh, I want a couple. More I have that little guy. It's cool. It's like yeah. a little. It's like a little junior dreadnought. He's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. adorable. He's cute. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want. I want to get him to a, a you know a good standard and start using him a lot too. And that's it for our hobby progress. I think. Let's, why don't we jump right into the next thing here, which is uh, some new GW stuff. Was that a hobby progress under like three hours? That was good. It was. Yeah, that was only 30 minutes, which was great. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Let's talk about Combat Roster, okay? The email just went out today. Combat Roster is live in full effect for not matched play yet, but for open play power level based games. I know we all checked it out today. What did you guys think of it? There's nothing in Combat Roster that I cannot do with a 3x5 card and a pack of crayons. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm having trouble understanding what what what, what? I, yeah, it, I'm having trouble what <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble. It is basically just a calculator. Is that correct? I mean, it is just adding power level, which is something you can do on a like on a napkin, right? Help me out here. I'm not. Getting... I mean, I don't like to insult anybody's work, you know, because somebody worked on this. This is their baby, but I don't know. It looks like something you would turn in, you know, for for as long as they've been working on it, which is a year. I know GW's been busy with um, all the 8th edition releases that they've been doing a wonderful job with. You know, uh, all the FAQs, all the codexes, everything's been great. But whoever made this combat roster, it it looks like they did it, like, last minute over over the course of a weekend. You know what I mean? Like, this is something I feel like I would, you know, be turning in. It's like an assignment I would be turning in for school or turning in for, for like, like, a project for work that I, like, dropped the ball on. I'm like, oh crap! I, I should probably do this. That, it looks nice, though. Like, I mean, it looks. I love the cleanliness of it. I think that's <laughs> that's the one thing that, like, like the one benefit it has. 
Yeah, I mean, because it's lacking any sort of detail at all. But I mean, like, when you print out the roster, it looks very clean. But it's devoid of useful information. Well, right, wait, wait, exactly. Let me, let me say this. Let me throw it's, something in It's here. clean as all get out, but... <laughs> let me throw this out here. It is okay. well. What do you got? I, I'd like some really new players to give us some feedback. Um, um, you know, maybe, maybe to a newer player this is useful to a really new player. Maybe it's useful. That's the first thing. Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, I don't maybe. know. Right. Like the whole point of power level was to easily like, and quickly assemble a list, right? Cause you don't have to worry about, um, weapons upgrades or the only thing that it calculates and it does do this. It changes the power level based on how many guys are in the unit, which is because power level increases when you add three or six guys or whatever. Right. But, like, this is something that was intended to be, you know, like a combat roster. Let's look at what's out there right now. We have Battlescribe, uh, Army Builder, uh, whatever else is out there, right? We have a Quartermaster you can use, right? So, like, Battlescribe especially is a, m- the one that most people will know. When you use it, 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 it isn't always accurate, but it allows you to quickly build a list on the fly. It notifies you when you've made a mistake or something's not valid. It puts... Uh, detachments in there for you you can read the stats of the models and the special rules and you can get a printout for it and i know we've talked about this before we don't like the printout because of i've actually out. solved the printout problem i'll tell you about that later <clears throat> the sum the summary option right because it prints yep. out yep but that's still you have to look on a couple different pages if you're going to go from blood claws you know then you look at the it's nice i like to print that first page out with the stat block from the summary and then print the rules out uh in the other format but so the thing that combat roster doesn't do is any of that, right? At the at the moment, all it does is add power level for you. And so, if they're going to they're going to create something that you know needs to push battle scribe aside, they want people to use this thing. They want to and you know, this is something that has been talked about on the Facebook page. Um and I'm not sure if it's true or not, so don't take this as this hearsay. Uh People were saying that Adepticon, when they announced it, they're going to charge monthly for this thing, when, for the points, when the points come out. I would happily subscribe to something that was better than Battlescribe. I'm happy to subscribe to Battlescribe for as much as I use it, but this right now... I don't know if I'd pay monthly. I, I would pay. If it, if it can offer me features that I'm actually going to use, if it can make list building quicker and easier and easier to save, and if it can take me away from my smartphone and doing it in Battlescribe, then I'll, I would happily pay... But not for what it, it – it can't be like it is right now. There's nothing here. Yeah, maybe this is just kind of, hey, just to wet our whistles, just to show us that. And the next stage is, has the important information, maybe. Yeah, but the thing is, like, after a year, you need to come out with something more than this. Like, they should have wet our whistles with this a year ago when they announced it. Like, that would have been, I think, appropriate. To wait a year and then put this out doesn't make sense to me. You know, I, I like an idea that I had that I think would work well with this is so I would do with this is I would take it and I would go, OK, I would make it like D&D Beyond, right, where you buy the codex. So you make an account and then everything that you buy on that account is tied to that account. Right. And I would hope that, you know, with 40K, since you're buying the hard the hard copies, you would be able to like scan a barcode in or something like that. And then that book would be allotted to your account and then you could like the the um, combat roster 
could take that information and give you access to say about the Space Wolves Codex when it comes out, right? Um, say buy it as an ebook. Let's make it easy for them. They don't even have to do the barcode, right? It's I own the Space Wolves Codex. I can add those Space Wolves unit and get uh, to my. I can make a list with those Space Wolves units and get their stat profiles and get their rules for them printed out on the roster when I make it. You know, I think that I would pay for that. I would pay. I would pay for the book, and then I would even pay monthly, like two bucks or whatever to use it, you know, to support the the updates to the program because they're not going to support it unless they have income to allotted to support it, right? Uh, budgeted to support that. I find that when you try to nickel and dime your players like this, it doesn't promote play. That's what you need to be doing, promoting play. What I'm saying right now doesn't really promote play. I do, I do want to give you guys a little bit of a um, battle scribe hint. So I've been using battle scribe for a long time for a lot of different games. Um, I switched from Battlescribe Mobile to Battlescribe on my PC, and it is a really, really big difference. I don't know why, but also um, my son, Akil, he put me hip. Instead of trying to print your list out, save it as an HTML, and then go into your browser and open it and print from that. And for some reason, the format is almost flawless. Really? Yes. For some reason, it doesn't break it up between pages. You know how you get your, your stats broken up between pages? Yep. Yeah, it keeps it all together. So save it. Instead of printing it, save it as an HTML and then go into your browser and open up. It's made all the difference in the world. In addition to that, he's actually shown me, and I'm having, I've am i been better at it for the big tournaments I do it. He's actually shown me the code line that you can open up the HTML and um, notepad. And insert the page breaks exactly where you want them. And so what I've been able to do in that is when I have duplicate units, to erase the duplicate units. So I only have one sheet for, like if I have three warrior units, Necron Warriors, only lets the warriors once. With the new way they're licensing Battlescribe, you do have to get a second license for the desktop version in addition to the mobile version. Is that correct? Is that still the case? That is the case, but what I did was I made that switch just as my license was expiring, and I only renewed my um, desktop version. Okay, okay. I'd like to try it on the desktop. I've only been using it on an Android smartphone, and it works well enough, and I do like it, and I'm, you know, the developer seems to be on top of it, and it's, I forget how much it is a year, but it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's worth it's it. It's like five bucks or yeah, something it's, like it's, that a it's, year. it's worth it, so I'll, I'll, I'll try the desktop version, too. I didn't think there'd be that much of a difference, but if there is, it's probably worth checking out. The next thing on our list to discuss regarding GW's uh, releases coming up, there is a, a thing here. There is a rumors in mm-hmm. boldface. I do not know, because of the way we use OneDrive and Word Online, I don't know who put this rumor in here. Who put this rumor in this episode? Carlo? No, it was me. It was me. It was me. They have a rumor going around, and there are two two different rumors. One about Inquisitor, and that's a weak rumor. And, you know, I don't usually talk about weak rumors, but, you know, remember I talked to you guys about the, you heard it here first, the box set with the Necrons and the... um, You called Ford Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fane. Right. Um, This rumor seems to be pretty strong that they're thinking about a um, Battlefleet Gothic box set. They're going to be reintroducing it. It looks like it's going to take place in the Horus Heresy time frame, the rumors are saying. And then if it takes off, they're going to update it. Um, Did you say Battlefleet Gothic? Battlefleet Gothic. Someone, We were literally just talking about that last night. And somebody was like, I wish they never stopped producing that game. 
and here you go. Yeah, I still have my Necron fleet. I did like Battlefleet Gothic. I liked the ships. There was some things that I liked about I didn't like about the mechanics, but I liked it. I'm really interested in seeing, you know, with their efforts at streamlining things, I'm interested really in what they would come up with. People are playing X-Wing and um, Star Wars. Is it Armada? X-Wing Armada? People are playing that like left, right, and center right now, right? It's the most popular miniatures game in the world right now. Do you think this would get some folks like off of the Star Wars tip and into doing that kind of a style of game in the 40k setting how do you feel no because see star wars i think people like those miniature games because those come already painted you open the box you get them and you pay them but they're talking about putting out a set and then relying a lot on forge world um that's what the rumor said um i I don't think that i think you're still going to be in the in the realm where you're building and painting and maybe even customizing a little bit, but I, I think that's what you're going to be looking at. Um, it's a different kind of gamer than we'll be playing. It's, it is swing. a different yeah. kind of game. Okay, gotcha. It's a different kind of game. And, you know, I think this is more of like fleet actions as opposed to, you know, fighter actions. I played the um, Battlefleet Gothic video game a few times, the computer game that came out last year, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, and they're they're releasing a second edition of that, I think later this year or something. Um, it got relatively good reviews on Steam, so I checked it out, and it was enjoyable. And some people did consider it to be a good, you know, a good version of the old tabletop game, if you will. And uh, and Battlefleet Gothic is one of those 40k games that, or one of those GW games that, you know, if, if folks that have been in the hobby a long time like look back on Battlefleet Gothic as something that a lot of people really, really liked, it was pretty popular, from what I understand. So I'd be curious to see if they can reignite that. Uh, that fervor for how much people used to like this game. I have some old books that um, show you how to combine the two, where you go from Battlefleet Gothic and pivot straight into a, um, um, a 40K game. Oh, I like the sound of that, as if you're playing a campaign, like right. the, the micro and the macro kind of at the same time. That's cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I like the sound of that. It's like those um, those tiles, those hexagon, um, what are those things called? You can still buy them at the, on the GW site. I, I know what uh, you're talking about. I have those. Yeah, the, the yeah. Weird, it's like the tile set for campaign play. Yeah. So, right. you, can, so you can like like say like okay the this units and this ship and then whatever ship like doesn't make it to the battlefield those units don't come on or something like right. that yeah. and and you know ex- um especially with the zone mortalis they have rules for boarding actions right yeah you could be in, you could be in the space ships. marines have boarding torpedoes all right lavelle this is your next uh i'm watching you and, it mike, you and mike that's your next campaign for you and mike you guys yeah. gotta like document <laughs> and record and post. I'll get right on that. Cool. We'll take a quick break and we will return with section two. Welcome, Scouts. Stick around. Welcome back. Episode 14, section number two. Welcome, Scouts where we talk about a rule or two that uh, is worth diving into for the benefit of both players new to the game and players that have been in the game for a while. But um, in this episode, we're talking about fly. We're talking about flyers, skimmers, jet bikes, things that can benefit from having the fly keyword. Fly is a rule slash keyword. Uh, Models with this rule can move over terrain. They can move over other units and can shoot after having fallen back out of a combat. Now, along with fly, there are several sub-rules that are worth talking about. There is hard to hit, 
which means uh, negative one in shooting attacks against models with this rule. So if you are shooting, if you if you are a space marine shooting up at a flyer, you are automatically a minus one to your roll in shooting attacks against hard to hit flyers. There's another fly kind of sub rule called airborne. Airborne units can't charge and can only be charged by models with the fly keyword. Next one is hover jet, which is which some flyers have. You declare hover before moving and the model loses hard to hit so it can be shot at regular ballistic skill. It loses supersonic and airborne, meaning it can charge now. It loses those rules but now it can move up to 20 inches so it can make a, a shorter distance move across the table in any direction because it doesn't have supersonic anymore. Supersonic, each movement must start with a 90 degree pivot and move in a straight line. And when advancing, you automatically add 20 inches to the move. Hey, Timothy, you said they have to pivot. If you turn, you have to pivot at the beginning of your movement. If you're supersonic, you don't have to pivot. You can pivot up to 90 degrees at the beginning of your move. For example, let's look at a, a, a flyer that is a really good flyer, the Doom Scythe. Listen, this is supersonic. Each time this model moves, first pivot it on the spot up to 90 degrees. So that pivot oh, can be zero degrees. Uh, that makes this sense. This does not contribute to how far the model moves. And then move the model straight forward. Note that it cannot pivot again after the initial pivot. Okay, so that means that at the beginning of its turn, it can pivot up to 90 degrees and then move. So it can choose to pivot zero and move. But once it moves, it can't pivot again. Right, you can't, you can't turn again at the end of the move, right? That is correct. Okay. So and since it says up to 90, you can kind of like, that can zero. change your angle a little bit. You could do 45. You know, if you look at the flyer, um, like the stem on the flyer, it's shaped like a, an, a T, if you will. Yeah, the cross, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. So what I always do is I look either to the left or the right of that T, and I know my model can move anywhere up into that angle of either the, to the left or the right, and I pivot right there up to that, and then I move it its distance. And when I'm doing my planning, that's how I plan it all right off that T. Often what I will do is before I move the model, I might even use my straight edge laser pointer to make sure me and my opponent agree on where that 90 degree is. Because I find some sloppy players, they get sloppy with that 90 degrees, but it makes a real big difference. As well as that minimal distance, because, you know, like the, the Doom site that I just talked about, it can move 20 to 60 inches but it has to move at least 20 inches. Yeah, that's crucial. Yeah. Um, the last cool rule, which I know Lavelle is a big fan of, is crash and burn. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so if this model is reduced to zero wounds, you roll a d6 before taking it off of the battlefield, and before any embarked models disembark. On a six, it crashes and explodes, and each unit within six inches suffers d3 mortal wounds. Crash and burn has come in so handy for me so many times on killing what has killed me 
I really like Crash and Burn. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Killing with his kill, me. I like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that one. Big fan of that one. Yeah. Do you often spend find yourself spending command points to make Absolutely. that happen? Absolutely. That is that is one of the things I'm proud to be so reckless and cavalier about using my command points for is <laughs> is Crash and Burn. Yep, I want that Crash and Burn. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think last I think last episode we talked about um, uh, how all flyers you're measuring from the base. For everything, right. correct? Yeah, not from the model itself, but you're measuring right. from that base and for all these. Un- unless it says differently in the profile, right. so that's one thing I didn't know at the time. I didn't clarify, so it could be. I know we were talking about Lavelle's Forge World uh, giant flyer thing. So if it did say that, and that, it did, and I know Lavelle. <laughs> okay, well, if it had <laughs> right. said it on the on the profile that you measure from the hole, then in that case you do. But anything with a base, you always measure from the base. Let me. Uh, Carlo, let me also say, on, on turn one, my night scythe, in which I have ability to dump people out, on turn one, sometimes also, I might want to move them 80 inches to really get them on the backfill. And if they survive, even if they don't survive, on turn two, I can dump two units out. Nice. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the flyers for a second. A couple of things I want to recommend that you always do when your opponent has flyers. A couple of questions that you should always ask. Ask, is that flyer a supersonic? Does it have supersonic? You need to know that. And ask if that flyer can hover. Don't get surprised thinking it's going to have to move 20 inches or whatever and then have it hover and spin around and have its cannons in your face the next turn. So make sure you ask if it can hover and if it has supersonic and also ask if it's hard to hit. It's hard to hit. Yeah. A couple. Yeah. A couple things I wanna I wanna say, um, and this is specifically about the Necrons, which is interesting. The Necrons, um, I could talked about them a little earlier. The Scarab Swarms, which really surprised me, is they now have fly, so those little swarms can attack a flyer, and that really surprised me because that's a very powerful ability. You got so many of them, and each one has a three attack, three attacks, and they always wound on a five up. In addition, the Canoptic Wraiths, the Wraiths lost fly. They don't have fly anymore, but they have the ability to move across terrain and um, across terrain and through models. They can go through anything. But what's interesting is by losing fly, even though they can go across terrain, they can no longer ignore vertical distances. Oh, okay. interesting. So you're climbing right. up the side of terrain to get through it. Right, and so you got to measure that distance differently, and so it looks like, hey, great, now you, but you still got to think about it differently. And so there's some advantages to fly that you might take for granted. When I, whenever I use my custodians jet bikes, people try to hide up in buildings. I got you up there. Just wait right there. <laughs> there's one more fly rule that we didn't talk about. One more flyability, which is strafing run. Uh, strafing run, you can add one to hit rolls for this model when targeting an enemy in the shooting phase that cannot fly. So if you have a flyer with the strafing run special rule, like a storm talon, for instance, you get plus one to hit for everything that's on the ground. So that's another one of those fly-specific abilities that might appear on your data sheet for a given flyer. Uh, Carlo, go ahead, sorry. So, I mean, it's pretty simple. You get um, fly, right? So with the jet bike. So you can move uh i think with the with the wind riders uh for example on the eldar you get a, m- a movement of 16 inches so generally with a jet bike you get a little bit more movement than you would with a normal unit um six like so normally i think eldar moves seven inches or so right for their basic troops so you get 
almost an extra, you get nine inches. And then when you advance with them, they have something called ride the wind. So instead of rolling a D six for advancing, you just add six. So, uh, Flying jet bike units and stuff like that are really great for maelstrom games where you need to get across the table really quickly. Say you draw an objective um, that's like halfway across the table. You know, you can get there that turn pretty easily because you're moving a guaranteed 22 inches. Um, or with the Jukari, the new Jukari bike or the Reavers, um, they have base 18 movement so they can go. Um, or 24. I can't remember if it's base 18 or if they have an 8-inch advance, but it's like, yeah, they can go 24. So um, now if you combine that with uh, like a, a spell like Quicken or something like that, you can you can move pretty far if that turns. So it's always a good, you know, if you, if, you, if you play like a high mobility army, you definitely want some jet bikes in there to capture objectives. Um, now it's also really nice for, especially for wind riders that move and shoot, because of the rule fly, you can put some uh, shuriken cannons on them, which are assault. So you're moving your t- full 22 inches with the advance, and then you get assault. Uh, it's assault three shots that are now hitting on fours because you advanced, but um, they're wounding with strength six, and they're one damage. But if you roll a six for the wound, it's minus three AP, which is a really nice weapon. Um, so you can you can do anything with that. You can hurt some vehicles with that. You know, um, you can hurt some heavy heavy uh, elite stuff. So it's always that's like a really um, dynamic unit. Um, now a lot of those jet bikes, and I'll, I'll say this, are very fragile. You don't see that with the custodies, which Lavelle will tell you about in a second. They're pretty beefy, but with uh, you know Eldar jet bikes, uh, you know Dark Eldar jet bikes, they're pretty fragile so you want to keep them out of range of stuff and you want to keep you want to keep uh, high mobility with them to get around your opponent reading the land speeders rule uh, they have a they have a neat one uh, for space marine land speeders they have this uh, an, adu- an additional ability called anti-grav upwash have you guys heard about this one this one was new to me um, models in this unit have a move characteristic of 20 inches instead of 16 inches well, you have three models in the unit. So if you take a unit of three land speeders, you're getting plus four to move because of this anti-grav upwash rule. So they're like, like flo- they're like drafting underneath each other. Yeah, they're of. kind of like yeah. pushing each other along, I guess, in yeah. some strange way. It's yeah. like it's kind of like an air hockey table. Like they put a lot of exactly, you know, exactly. force between them and the ground, and exactly. they all just float around. Um, yeah. the, 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 land, the land speeder storm, however, does not have that because it's a single model unit. You can't put more than those, more than one of those in a uh, in a unit. Do we forget anything about flyers, guys? We did. We forgot that we can't hold. They can't hold objectives. Oh, good one. Yeah. When determining which player controls an objective marker, exclude all units that have the flyer battlefield role. These units can never control objective markers. It's important to denote we are talking about models and units that fit in the flyer category. Not just things with the fly keyword, but specifically things that are in the flyer category. Battlefield role flyer. So that that's an important thing. Like if you're a player, uh, if you're playing a game and you don't have an answer to their flyers, a good... I don't know if it's a good tactic, but a tactic available to you is to just shoot everything else on the board 
first because once that flyer is the last thing on the board, they can't hold. A, they lose the game as soon as they go into their next turn. Because if you start a turn with only flyers on the board, it's an automatic loss. And then B, they can't hold objectives with flyers. So I always found like the, the way to kind of deal with them, if you don't really have an answer to them, is just shoot at whatever's more important first, but like try to put some wounds on them to get them down to their lower profiles a bit. It's the same thing with like a knight, you know? Episode 14, section number three, tactical upload. We're talking about the new fact, the new frequently asked questions, which is literally just called the big fact. Released on the 16th of April, 2018. A lot to talk about. Other podcasts and other blogs have really torn this thing apart. I would like to dive into how this directly affects the armies that we play most frequently and then just kind of get our general sense of how this is going to affect matched play, which is what we do most of the time. So starting right from the top of the new big FAC 1 2018 document, um, that I think two things that are relevant to everybody that plays the game, matched play at least, these are, are really important changes. Uh, the psychic focus change. Uh, I'll read that before we start diving into it. Psychic focus. With the exception of smite, each psychic power can be attempted only once per turn rather than once per psyker per turn. In addition, unless the psyker attempting to manifest smite has either the Brotherhood of Psychers or Brotherhood of Sorcerers ability, you must add one to the warp charge value of smite for each attempt, whether successful or not, that has been made to manifest smite during a given psychic phase to a maximum warp charge value of 11. The example they give here is, for example, if an orc psyker attempts to manifest smite during a psychic phase in which two other psychers have already attempted to manifest smite, then the warp charge value of smite is 7, because the base value is 5. It got to 6 with the second attempt. With the third attempt, it's going to be 7. So I don't mind this change terribly much. I think this makes sense. You can't just cast Smite at a five up at a, at a warp charge five, the entire phase with all your psychers. How do you how do you feel about this, Lavelle? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was waiting. I was waiting. I got got some opinions. I really like this change. You know, a lot of times people have begun calling the psychic phase the Smite phase because that's what everybody was doing. I like the I like I like. Psychers being able to smite. If you can, if you're a psyker, you can access smite. That was the first thing. But I like reining it in. But I have to talk about the way that they gave the out to the uh, Grey Knights and the Brotherhood of Sorcerers. That makes sense thematically because their psychic abilities are so important to the core of their army. That makes sense. But I also like making. Um, Doubling up on psychic powers in your army, a risky proposition. I think with the psychic focus change that, that uh, GW has, has a winner here. And I think with the adjustment of the, um, with the, the Grey Knights and the Brotherhood of Sorcerers, I think that they have a good, a good, um, a good out for those armies that it's most critical for. I, I like this. And my armies, you know, my Necrons, we don't have any psychers. We don't know anything about that crap. And in my custodies, we don't have any psychers at all. And, you know, we get impacted by smite a lot. Um, we get a, Yeah, but, uh, you know, I still feel like um, one of the things that I, I always saw a lot prior to this 
is I saw a lot of people trying to warp time all of their models and units all over the board. And limiting that is worth it to me. Agreed on all counts, Lavelle. Let's move on to the next one on that first page of the big fact. Targeting characters. I'll read that one. An enemy character with the wounds characteristic of less than 10 can only be chosen as a target in the shooting phase if it is both visible to the firing model and it is the closest enemy unit to the firing model. Ignore other enemy characters with the wounds characteristic of less than 10 when determining if the target is the closest enemy unit to the firing model. This means that if any other enemy units, other than other characters with a wounds characteristic of less than 10, are closer, whether they are visible or not, then the enemy character cannot be targeted. Lavelle, you play a lot of armies with a lot of characters. You have a character full. All of your armies are characters. Yes. So, um, you know, I like the targeting, the limitation of targeting characters. But I have to say, not having visibility is a little, a little bit crazy to me. So I've seen it, and I've actually played it, where I have a unit that the, the firing models cannot see. But because they are closer, they can't target my character that is right in their face, front and center. And it just, it, it, I'm just like, huh? In addition to that, if your unit is in close combat with my unit, you still can't shoot past the unit. Even though my close combat unit is not even selectable as a target, you can't shoot by that. I mean, that offers a lot of protection to characters. But when the characters are not visible at all, um, you know, that, that you know, I, I mean, that, that definitely works to my benefit, but it's still kind of, feels a little funny is it too strong it's too early to tell okay okay it's too early to tell i'm willing to keep playing it out um i don't know that it really i guess this is really what's most telling i don't know that it really has made a big deal i don't know that it has made a big difference lavelle walk us through these these beta match play rules these are some pretty significant changes let's so talk the, about it there are two things in the beta rules that um i've been playing with and i i've been checking them out so the first is tactical reserves. When you bring up on your first turn, when you bring units in from reserves, you can only bring them in in your deployment zone. This is a huge change. It's a huge change. But there are some abilities that happen before the first turn. Um, Raven Guard have an ability for striking, I think it's called striking from the shadows, where they deploy prior to the first turn. There's also some discussion, and I'm not an expert on this piece right now. There's some discussion about things that put things in reserve and then bring them out of reserve, like Veil of Darkness. If you Veil, that's a, a, a that's a, um, a artifact for um, um, the Necrons. And what it does is it takes your models, it moves them off the table, and brings them back on as if they were coming from reserves, like deep striking. But if you do Veil of Darkness in your first turn, you can only Veil of Darkness in your deployment zone, based on the way tactical reserves. However, the Deceiver's ability happens before the first turn, and it allows you to redeploy outside of your, uh, what's his name, outside of your deployment zone. So you need to be sure you read your ability and know when it occurs. If it occurs in the first turn, it can only deploy in your deployment zone. 
This change does not apply to gene stealer cults, the units that are being set up according to cult ambush, which makes sense because gene stealer cults need that ability to get right up underneath you if the dice go in their favor, or units that set up after the first battle round has begun, but before the first turn begins. That's the important differentiation right there, such as those set up with as forward operatives or uh, strike from the shadows using that stratagem uh, for the Raven Guard. Right. Now, we went to the second part of the tactical reserve rule. The first part of the reserve rule says at least half, and this is a problem rule here, half of your power level has to be on the table at the end of deployment. If, you, you, if you're setting things up in reserve, high orbit, whatever, half. What makes that a little bit problematic is most of us use point levels. Right. And the first tournament, the very first tournament I played, uh, I found out rapidly that I could not deploy my assassins, all of my assassins, the way they were meant to be deployed, because I would not have enough power level in reserve on, on the table. Gotcha. Let's talk about the next change with these beta rules, which is Battle Brothers. So listen, I, I, everybody should listen to this. I'm going to read exactly what's here. Battle Brothers. All of the units in each detachment in your Battle Forge army must have at least one faction keyword in common. In addition, this keyword cannot be Chaos, Imperium, Aldari, Yanari, or Tyranids, unless the detachment in question is a fortification network. This has no effect on your army faction. So, this last sentence is what matters in Battle Brothers. This last sentence says, this has no effect on your army faction. And what I just read was the army faction rule. 214 under match play. It's specifically under army faction. And this Battle Brothers thing doesn't apply to army faction. So based on that, coming back to what Car- we'll started this conversation, Carlos said I could have a, um, um, a Vanguard detachment of Astra Telepathica. I was saying you could do an auxiliary support detachment, which is like one of any kind of unit. So you could do an HQ. Uh, you could do Grayfax in there for minus one CP. But if you can run a, a Vanguard with three Psychers in it or whatever, and like, uh, you know, that'd probably be better because you get a CP for it. Right. You could run a Vanguard with the, uh, there's a very cheap Psyker, and that cheap Psyker, you can give him a very powerful. Because he, he, he's got a mini smite, but screw that. You can give him a different one. We've talked about it before, how you could kind of fudge like the, the reason that an army would exist, you know? And you could make up a force that was too powerful between two different forces. So this is really forcing you to have a more thematically appropriate army on the table if you want the benefits of being Battle Brothers. Listen to this. My son Akil said after, you know, he had been away for a while for a couple of the games. He didn't play a lot of 7th edition. He sat down with the 8th edition rule book. He looked at all the rule books. He looked at all the codecs that were out. And the first thing he declared was, this is not fair. And I was like, well, wait, where's this coming from? He said, this is not fair because the Imperium has such a tactical advantage over everybody else. You have so many units that you can call together and so many different types. You have more tools in your toolbox than anybody else. And that's why you ended up with Imperial Soup. Even though the Chaos, the Chaos Codex, or Codices, all gave you a bunch of different factions, 
the Imperium was really, really strong. And so I was telling people, well, you know what, Nan, you can't, you can't make that Imperial soup. I can't have my, um, I can't have Celestine and Great Facts and all of these people charging across the battlefield, all over the battlefields, doing all kinds of incredible things. It's not allowed anymore. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it will force more cohesive, more narratively appropriate armies, uh, more appropriate allies. I'm, 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 not, I'm not mad at this one. I like this. If I could skip ahead down into some of the changes, and I caught somebody with this, which I think is very, very powerful. It says, they changed Imperium Book 2. No maidens. These are the Sisters of Silence. So long as your warlord is from the Imperium, you can include any of the Sisters of Silence in a vanguard detachment, because they're all elites, even if the detachment contains no HQ. However, if you do so, that, that detachment's command benefits are changed to none. In addition, all of the assassins get this ability, execution force. So long as your warlord is from the Imperium, you can include this unit in a vanguard detachment even if that detachment contains no HQ. However, it's same thing. It no, did no command points. Let me tell you something. My eyes zoomed right in on those two things. So you're, so you're not getting the plus one, you're, so you're not getting the plus one command point for taking this right. Vanguard detachment, but you can take it without an HQ, so you can at least include these things in your army, which is actually very flavorful, because there are a lot of HQs that could very be in other flavorful. parts of your army that would have... Um, they would have Sisters of Silence with them or would have assassins with them. Tim, one of the other things that they changed in, in this was that, that they changed the, um, the battalion. It went from three to five command points. If the FAQ dropped on a Tuesday, I'm, that next Saturday I was at a tournament with a battalion of custodies and a vanguard of Null Maidens and a vanguard of Execution Force. It's no wonder you did so well at that tournament. <laughs> and, you know, people, people were like, Judge, this is a battle forge. And I had, to, I had to print out the FAQ. Yeah. And it fits right in there because, you know, the custodians are going to war and they're bringing under the same warlord. You don't got a commander. You're reporting to this custodian's commander. So all of these elites, these two units of elites are there supporting. I like the, and it, you know, before, when I tried to do that Vanguard, I ended up having to stick some, some somewhat related, like a, either a Greyfax, an Inquisitor, or a sister, uh, somebody. Like, that's how Celestine ended in my army. The lead, the sisters, at something. And they sucked. They were point sinks. But now it freed it up. It worked very, very well. Here's the next thing um, in the FAQ that's really interesting. So they're looking at some adjustments. They made some small adjustments to balance the game out. So the first was that they changed the battalion detachment command benefits to five. Right. And then they changed the brigade benefits to 12. Damn. Yeah, it's that's pretty a awesome. lot. Yeah, it's pretty great. That's they pretty changed great. that to 12, which I was, I just couldn't, I didn't even know what to do with that. That number was so big. I had trouble getting my head around that. Um, it's the next one that gets me because this one affects yes. my iron hands, right? So I used to give my HQ choice, um, I used to give my captain in Terminator armor two six-up feel-no-pains between his warlord trait and the flesh is weak, but this limits that. 
to just one six up feel no pain which hurts because that has come in handy more on more than one occasion but it also it also affects disgustingly resilient flesh is yes. weak and tenacious yes. survivors so yes. I'm, I'm glad it affects disgustingly yes. resilient of course disgusting resilience disgusting resilience is is just such an army-wide trait and those guys were just sticking around over and over again they were getting multiple save you know so you know you get your you will get your normal save and then you ignore wound save. And, you know, I had that ability, too, with some, like a, um, some ancient had that ability on a 6+. plus, But to, to stack that on top of an inbound save and then have it again was a bit much. You know, in some regards, if you have one or two model on the table and you're doing that, it's not really a big deal. But if you got a, a army-wide thing that's doing that. I think it does slow down play a little bit. So just real quick before we move on, um, they Wait, made... Uh, the, organized, the organized play one was really big too. The last one where they limit, you know, based on the number of um, the point size and they, they recommend, recognize this, they recommend specific battlefield size, which I don't think they did before, like up to a thousand point. They actually recommend that you play on a four by four and that the game lends be two hours. But they limit the time, the number of times that a data sheet can be included in an army, and they recommend that that uh, you know. Well, I guess is they recommend the number of detachments and the number of times a data sheet can be included. So, at a thousand points, you should have up to two detachments, and a data sheet should be only included up to two times per army, which would mean at a thousand point, even. This does not affect troops or dedicated transports. If I wanted to, I could not put three Vindicare assassins on the table, even though I might be able to afford it. Right. Even if you have the points for it, they're not recommending that you do that. Yeah. Right. And so this limitation, it does kind of corral outlier armies. That's the best way I want to call it. This makes sense to me. I mean, there's, there are some stratagems that require you to have, there's some space marine stratagems, like the one that requires you to have uh, three Vindicators in a unit and they all get a benefit from one another there's a uh the admech one that uh if you have three uh iron striders together they they give it a buff so i, I could see three being the, the ceiling that makes sense to me but let me tell you what is a, a loophole here imperial guard can take tanks and squadrons oh and the squadron is one data sheet yes and right. so the squadron sure. would be three yeah sure. three lemon rush punishers sure and, sure so sure. you know you can end up you know, and I do. You know, in that particular regard, I do have nine lemon russes. So there have been some points changes on the last page. The most significant one that I can see, I think, is uh, uh, Raboot Gilliman is now uh, forty points more expensive than he was, which is good. Death Corps Creek, the commissar is fifteen, and the commissar riding a horse is um, what does that number say there? Thirty-five. There. Yep. So the Death Corps commissar was thirty. And the Death Corps Commissar riding a horse was 50. So they reduced them. Overall, I think they, they said another FAQ comes out before the next chapter approved. Just to nip and tuck a little bit here and there just to adjust. Yep. Yeah. I, FAQ comes out in April, and then it comes out again in um, September. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back with Future History, where we're going to talk about Imperial Knights. Stay tuned. Episode 14, Future History, we are talking about the Questor Imperialis. 
Imperial Knights, the knightly houses of the 41st and much earlier millenniums. These are the big, walking, armored, battlesuit-looking type of things. I guess every sci-fi setting needs them. Let's dive in. Future history. What we're going to do is just kind of cover some of the background of these things, and we're going to get into the specific uh, variants that are uh, in play in the uh, 41st millennium. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you guys will find it interesting. I'm looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of the knights. I love the models. I like the fluff around them. I really like the story behind the knights, actually. So let's dive into it. Tim, let me ask a question before we begin. Is anybody watching the YouTube, like, short movies called Hell's Reach? I have not seen them yet. This is all new to me, LaBelle. Carla? I haven't seen it. Oh, listen. Hell's Reach. When when we're done, go to YouTube and start it. Each one, it's all fan-made. Each one is only maybe nine to ten minutes long. And we're all the way up into, they did a whole chapter that had ten episodes, and they just put out the second one of the second chapter. It's, it's phenomenal. Really? It's phenomenal. But this is why I bring this up. In that, there is what I first I thought was a knight. But now I'm thinking it might be, what is the step above a knight? A knight titan? What, so they're titans? Titans are the like big, the, the really big ones. Yeah, the really big ones are the, the Titans. War- Warlord, yeah, Titans. Warlord Titan, uh, the Imperator Titans. The uh... I can't tell in this animated series, which I am totally recommending, but I can't tell if that what they have in there. Oh, the Warhound. The Warhound. Yeah, it's, it's pretty big. It's and in the in the and not to give anything away, and there's a battle between that and the big orc one. But I want to come back to it when we. Because they, they, they show something visually in there. I'm going to come back to it. Let's start the history. If I remember correctly, the is it Hell's Reach or Black Reach? It's Hell's Reach. So it's not the assault on Black Reach story. It's a different story. Okay. Okay. Because in Black Reach, there's in Black Reach there's a orc um, mega, what do you call it, a big orc thing? Um, stompa? Yeah, yeah, big. Orca, right. the, the big stompa thing. And then I think there's some titans in there that take that take a couple of those down. That's a good book, The, uh, right. the Assault on this Black Hell's Reach. This Hell's Reach is the, the second attack by the orcs on Hell's Reach. Tim, I wanted to ask you, you, you read all three of the uh, Eisenhorn books, right? I did, yes. You know, in, uh, I, th- I think it's either Malleus or uh, Hereticus where uh, they fight the titan at the beginning. Are they talking about an Imperial Knight, or are they talking about, like, a Titan Titan? They're in, like, the airfield, and they're tracking down, I forget who it was, but they were working on these old Chaos Titans that they were keeping in secret inside this hangar. And the chaos, and the Titan, like, breaks out of it and just starts attacking them. And then he has to uh, do his thing. Yeah, so I'm okay. getting ahead, but one of the things I want us to talk about as we go through this is the discussion of scale. Okay, let, let's dive into the future history of the Questor Imperialis, which I love the sound of. So long before the creation of the Imperium of Man, mankind reached out into the stars in huge colonization ships full of settlers and supplies. They landed on many worlds, spread out and isolated from one another. Sometimes these ships were sent out to mine or to farm and stay connected with mankind for the purposes of supplying other colonies with food and supplies. These colonization ships held the STC, those standard template constructs that uh, the ADMEC are always keen to find, to build large bipedal walker exoskeletons to aid them in their efforts. These were what we refer to as Imperial Knights. The notion of the knight just being this big necessity for what could have been mining, for what could have been farming, could have been defense of a new colony that was getting set up. But they were basically this kind of all-purpose, magnificent, huge 
robotic exoskeleton. Only certain people, however, had the right mentality and constitution to control these night vehicles, these exoskeleton suits. Control was maintained via the throne mechanicum. It's a chair kind of cockpit thing that physically, almost like surgically, you know, with all the tubes and wires kind of meld and connect the body of the pilot to the mechanism that is the knight. The traits to control these suits were so rare that the pilots were quickly elevated to a very high social standing, and a feudal system kind of grew around those people. It's almost like the sword in the stone analogy, right? Where only one person could take the sword out of the stone. And only one person in, say, a 100,000 or a million or whatever it is can actually control a knight. It was with these traits that the knightly houses were born. The traits turned out to be hereditary, too. So these nobles became this kind of like a, uh, like a caste system of people who, chances are, would have the genetics necessary to control these imperial knights. Well, they weren't called imperial back then, but these exosuits. These knights and their pilots were revered and almost worshipped. I think the uh, the sword and the stone analogy is a good one here, guys. Am I right that it takes such it takes a very special person to be able to wield this much power? Well, here's the thing. You know, I'm always into 40k conspiracies. So the Titan was built a certain way, and the throne is adapted to take a certain almost genetic trait. And so these houses, the people, they they kind of through inbreeding, they just keep are the only ones who can produce the genetic thing to do it. And there, there's lots of evidence of that inbreeding throughout the 30K novels and the 40K novels, too. I know on the, we're going to talk about it later, but on the, on the world of Molech, where Horus shows up with the vengeful spirit at one point, uh, that house is like, it's layer upon layer of like cousins. And it's, you know, it's like any of the old, uh, you know, aristocratic families of Europe. It was not uncommon to marry cousins to cousins and to keep the, uh, you know, to keep that genetic pool kind of very shallow for whatever reason. But then comes the age of strife. Everything just kind of hits the fan, right? Human worlds become isolated from one another, technological advancement stops, and these feudal worlds, through the power of these knightly houses, are just strong enough to kind of coast along. They're just kind of surviving. What year was this about, do you know? Age of Terra is the first millennium to the 15th millennium. Age of Technology, which is where these STCs and where the expansion out of the stars starts, is uh, M15 to M25. And then the uh, Age of Strife, they have between 25 and 30. So this is just before the 30K setting kind of uh, comes around. Yeah. Okay, that's what it is. Yep, okay. yep, but, it's, but it's a big I'm, window. It's a 5,000-year window there. Yeah, Yeah, I'm seeing here something online says the Age of Strife began between M23 and M25 gotcha. and ended in M30, but they, they're not 100%. I mean, that's a big window. That's a 2,000-year window. Yeah. So the Age of Strife was, it would kind of, it tore humanity apart, right? Um, warp storms were everywhere. No one could speak with anyone else. No one could use the warp to travel safely and efficiently like they were doing. It was basically a period of great turbulence. Because remember, this was before the, uh, the emperor brought the Astronomicon onto the scene. Right to serve as that lighthouse across the galaxy, giving everyone relatively safe passage through the warp. So that's the Age of Strife. And we bring that up in, refer- in, kind of in the context of the Knights to say that these, these are some of the few worlds spread out across the galaxy that had enough strength in their feudal leaders to kind of keep it together. Granted, they stayed at this kind of odd 
you know, not to- they weren't a totally progressive society. This was, you know, basically knights in shining armor, and, and but they stayed at that point of development for a long time uh, because of the age of strife. But then the Imperium arrives. The coming of the Imperium is the next section here, right? The Emperor reunites the worlds of man during the Great Crusade, including these night worlds. While fealty is paid to the Imperium, the high standing of the Night Lords is continued in the name of maintaining social order. So again, these knightly houses were so powerful in their systems that the Emperor and the Imperium kind of needed to keep them around to maintain order over those systems, because throughout the Age of Strife, they did keep it on lockdown. So why upset the apple cart? As long as, you know, as long as we're getting your your young for the Imperial Guard, as long as you're not, you know, turning to the forces of chaos, we're going to let you kind of do your thing out here. Some night worlds, this is, a, this is a good point to talk about the, the forge worlds, that connection between the technology of Mars and the expansion out of mankind into the stars. Some night worlds are united with certain mechanicum forge worlds for the purposes of maintenance and protection. So across the galaxy, there are several of these Mars-like forge worlds, and some nightly houses have chosen to ally themselves very tightly with those forge worlds, because remember... So much was forgotten about technology during the Age of Strife. There was very little technological advancement. And there still is, even through the 41st millennium now. But for the last 15,000 years in the Imperium, very little progress has been made with regard to technology. And we're relying on prayers, incense, and ungent oils to keep these knights working. Some of these knightly houses need these connections to forge worlds to get, to get their oil going right on the knightly suit to keep it running. Carlo, why don't you start us off talking about some of these variations on the Imperial Knights? Wait, before we start talking about the Knights, can we just pick apart this history again? So here's a couple of things, because, you know, when I first got the Imperial Knight, um, the initial codex that they put out, there's some obvious gaps here that, to me, speak to kind of uh, a backward revision that must have occurred. So, for example, how did they even know how to make the, the, the shells that the knight shot? How did they even know to, because if, if you're a knight house and you don't have access to somebody from the Mechanicum, right? How, how do you even know how to do the proper prayers, which is programming, <laughs> that is required to operate these machines if you in fact fell into this into this disorder. That question, I think, Lavelle, you can ask that of a lot of technology in the, uh, the 40K setting. And the answer I kind of always rely on is that an STC is basically like, it's like this technological genetic blueprint that can do a great number of things, right? Like well, Pandora's box, me, some very specific. One of the things about the STC that makes it great, the STC is really a portable piece of artificial intelligence because the STC doesn't just tell you how to build a knight. It tells you how to build a knight with the materials on the planet that you are on. Right. It is a soup to nuts kind of guide. Based on what you have available. So it has to be adapted. I think in that STC was the original plans to make armaments for this knight. Was the original plans to do, you know, to create everything they needed to colonize that world. And those manufactorums are still operating on those planets. They're not getting any better. They're not getting any more advanced, but they're still kind of just clanking away in some fashion. See, the only thing is, and we should have a show specifically dedicated to the STC or the myth that is the STC. Those STCs, or it, let's just say that the only thing that they had was the piece related to the night and not necessarily everything else. But those STCs are not really available right now. 
true. When they arrive, say I'm a colonist, right? I'm going to land on Jupiter. I, I land, I stretch my legs, I break out my STC, and I start making nights. At the same time that I start making the night, I'm going to start setting up the manufactorum to make everything I need to make that, all the stuff the night needs. You know what I mean? I don't necessarily need that STC to be around forever, because clearly a lot of them were a lot of them are cast out into the warp, and all, you know all kinds of bad things happen to these STCs. That's why they're so valuable now. That's why so much technology has been forgotten, right? But that's another, like you said, that's another episode, another good, another good episode. That's part of this grim dark reality that I really like is this notion that technology is just kind of barely chugging along. It's just we are resulting to tr- to revering to worshiping these machines. Because we, we, really, we push the red button and we, we type in the, the sacred words. We don't really know what we're doing. We don't know what's on the other right. side of that screen. We don't know how to really fix it. We just pray at it. You know what I mean? We just splash more incense on it. And it just kind of – it's like technical taps all over the place, right? It's like if you hit the thing hard enough, it might start to work again. Or if you rub the special spot on the brass thing on the top, if you rub the cherubim, you know, it will start working again or whatever. <laughs> I, I just I, – I love that image of like a very advanced human civilization that has no idea what's going on technologically. Let's go into the night variation. Carlo, why don't you start us off with the Serastus Night Atropos? Uh, I was pronouncing it Atropos. Atropos? Very, like, tropical. I like it. I, I like Atropos. Yeah, do it. I mean, I'm sure Atropos is correct, but I think Atropos makes me get into, like, kind of like a vacation mode with it. Like, I'm at the beach in the Atropos. <laughs> you think they make a night-sized margarita glass? No. No, no. Uh, Serastus Night Atropos. One of the rarest and most potent nights, the Knight Atropos is a unique variant type of the Serastus pattern, bearing particularly rare and potent weaponry of annihilation. The Serastus Knight Atropos was created solely to destroy heretic engines and Xenos war machines whose very nature and existence were considered blasphemy to the Omnissiah. The machine spirits of the Knight Atropos are said to carry with them a cold and all-destroying hunger. And for the Scion who bounds with bonds with them madness is a constant risk but for such storied honor however dark the outcome this may be a price worth paying the sarasus knight atropos carries arcane and devastating weapons into battle the focused and deadly atropos last cutter that sees duty as a both arranged and close combat weapon and the violently destructive but potentially unstable gravitron singularity cannon oh graviton sorry with the speed and shielding of the Serastus chassis and the Knight Atropos' macro-extinction targeting protocols, the Serastus Knight Atropos is an uncommonly destructive weapon of war. Violently destructive but potentially unstable Graviton Singularity Cannon. <laughs> so good. So these Serastus Knights are like the tall, lanky-looking knights. And this one is like the tank killer, heavy armor killing version of those. Yeah, I guess so. so. Uh, you know, it kind of it, it's funny that you mentioned Gundam at the beginning of the show because uh, this kind of reminds me of the Zero system in Gundam Wing where it like you, it like drives the guy crazy if they can't handle it. Yep, yep, same idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just want to say I I remember my mother would come home and the place would be dirty and she would implement her macro extinction targeting protocol. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you don't want to be on the business end of that. You do not. You do not. It, <laughs> right. The macro extinction targeting protocol. They are uncommonly destructive. So in the, the scale picture of the knight with the little space marine next to him, the knight is actually the mother in that situation and space marine down. 
Aww. I'll take us through the uh, the Serastus Knight Castigator. Armed with fearsome castigator pattern bolt cannon, the Serastus Knight Castigator is favored by those households faced with hordes of lesser foes that might otherwise overwhelm even a mighty knight through sheer numbers. Capable of obliterating infantry formations in a thunderous rain of mass reactive explosions and whirling power blades, or carving apart light vehicles with ease, the Castigator is a formidable opponent. Okay, can we back up? Let me ask the question. Has anybody faced the Atropos or Atropos across the table in any game? No. The only one I've fought is the um, the Lancer, I think. Okay, I have a Castigator. The bolt cannons, one of their bolt cannons can eliminate a squad of Terminators. Yeah, Damn. This, it's a heavy 14, strength 6, AP 2. Each shot is doing 2 damage. So it, it is pretty effective. How many points is, is that? Um, the Castigator is about, uh, you know, I think you still have to kit it out. It comes in at a, a little under 500 points. I played with it in a couple of uh, tournaments, and it does pretty good. The base Castigator is, um, I'm looking right here in the book, 350. And then you get the Avenger Bolt Cannon, the Castigator Bolt Cannon, they call it, for another 120. And then you get the, the Tempest Warblade. And, you know, the Tempest Warblade is only 30. I want to say that what what my experience with this particular night, it is really, really good if you don't let it get charged. Some of the close combat knights can charge it and wreck its world. It has uh, about 27 wounds. It it does heal at the beginning of each of its turn, but it only heals one wound. And, you know, so you get the charge on that, you know, that one wound isn't going to help you a lot. It does have a speed of 14 inches. Yeah. I yeah, I don't, I don't see a downside to that at all. Like... I feel like it's better than an Imperial Knight. The Tempest Warblade does, um, it has a Warblade that does, uh, is is plus six strength, taking it up to strength 14, minus three, and each one of them does five wounds. Wow. But if you roll a six on your wound roll, you do an additional um, D3, an additional D3 mortal wounds against monsters or vehicles. Wow. It's pretty decent. Sweet. I would recommend one for your collection. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why don't you take us through the Asheron, Lavelle? The devastation wrought by the Knight Asheron is terrifying to behold. Armed with a fearsome Reaper chain fist, twin-linked heavy bolters, and an Asheron pattern flame cannon, they are employed as weapons of extermination and to inspire fear in their foes. Nothing will sway their attacks until the enemy is utterly crushed, never to rise again from flame-scoured ruins of their strongholds. So that's more like the close combat slash... Yeah, that's more like the close combat variant with a with a flamer, which is a great uh, a great a great kit out for that. Yeah, that flamer does a he- is a heavy two d six, strength seven, <clears throat> AP minus two, three damage each. That's pretty uh, decent. Whoa, seems like it's a good horde killer, too. Like the heavy, is it, you said it has twin heavy bolters, or something. Um, like it that? does. It does have twin heavy bolters in addition to that. Yes. Yeah, so. And it, the chain fist, the chain fist is uh, takes it up to strength sixteen, minus four AP and six damage each. Next up here is my favorite one, the Serastus Knight Lancer. The Serastus Knight Lancer is a first strike weapon, attuned to rapid assault tactics and lethal outflanking charges against a foe. It is justly renowned for its speed and its power, as well as for the temperature, temperamental and restive nature of it, the machine spirits, which dwell as anima within its colossal frame. Because of this reputation, the most impetuous and glory-hungry of the knight households are driven to bond with these war machines, their own souls, a for the fury caged within their mounts. 
The greatest of these pairings will go on to create martial legends among their lineage, while for those whose temper cannot fully master that of their knight engine, or whose own lust for glory might see valor outweigh caution on the battlefield, their triumphs are likely to blaze brightly, if briefly, in the chronicles of their households. That's a tongue twister. Great? <laughs> so, so the lancer has it has like a lance, like a jousting lance kind of a thing with it. This one I faced across the table and it was devastatingly powerful. Really, really good looking model too with the long kind of spear weapon. I don't know the name of that one. I didn't type it in here, but it's it's a great looking model. It's called the shock lance. Shock lance, that's it. Thank you, Lebeau. Yeah. Plus six strength, six damage each hit, and you can reroll fell wounds um, on the turn it charges. So that is going to that is going to jack I'm stuff sorry, up. Fell hits. That is going to jack stuff up. Yeah. Almost all um, knights have a uh, an invulnerable save against shooting, but this one has a four plus invuln in the fight phase. It has what's called an ion gauntlet shield, and that that can be pretty significant. As a knight, it is one of the more expensive ones at four twenty base cost. Worth every penny, I think. It's fast, and with that uh, with that shock lance, can do some real damage to one model on the board. That's a great one. The other one I like, I really like this model, the, the Porphyron, which is the next one, or the Peripheron. This is the big, like the, the big sh- heavy-shouldered one. It's like, it's basically a variant on the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Imperial Knight Paladin kind of a shape, but it's got these big, this bigger torso kind of thing on top. One of the most heavily armed and armored of all the knight chassis in service, the Acastus Knight Porphyron rivals even the scout titans of the Legio Titanicus in terms of size and power. Armed with weapons that can obliterate even the most heavily armored target, it is truly a force to be reckoned with. Taller than even the towering Serastus knights, the Acastus knight Porphyron or Porphyron, is a dominating presence on the battlefield. The knight's main weapons are a pair of twin-linked Magna Laz cannons, devastating weapons and an order of magnitude more powerful than even the Solex pattern heavy Laz cannon of the Mechanicum Tagmata, which is the old uh, Mechanicum uh, uh, army from 30k. Where a knight paladin might carry a heavy stubber as a secondary weapon, the Porphyron is armed with a pair of autocannon, which are often replaced with las cannons when additional anti-armor firepower is necessary. Its Iron Storm missile pod has a substantially larger payload than those found on more common knights, though in battle zones where the danger from airborne assault is apparent, the system can be replaced with powerful Helios defense missiles. I like this model a lot. It's not a super expensive kit either. It's just this big, this super chunky kind of walking building looking thing. This is going to be my next night, but let me just tell you something. Ladies and gentlemen, the award for most expensive night goes to this one. 540 points base. 540. But before you judge, the twin Magna laser cannons have a 72 inch range, and I guess they has, it has two of them. And each one fires 2d3 shots. Strength, 12. Minus 3 <laughs> AP, 6 damage each. <laughs> now, it can't be used for Overwatch. And it's got its normal last cannons. <clears throat> and we all know about the Iron Storm Missile Pod Heavy do 2d6. And it doesn't have to be able to see its target. Um, and the, the Helios missiles are Heavy 2, uh, Strength 8. Minus two AP, three damage each, plus one to hit target things with fly. Um, yeah, this is a nice one here. Wow, seventy-two inch range on two two D three number That's of shots. Right. That is right. And each one doing strength twelve, minus three AP. You know, six damage. And you know his his starting ballistic skill is a woo two plus. Oh, two damn. plus. 
not expensive either. That's or not, you know, just in terms of dollars to buy it. It's not a super expensive model. What does he move like four inches a turn or something? No, uh, a respectable ten inches. Ah. Thirty wounds, toughness nine. Holy crap! Right, yeah, this is a sweet one. So when you see mines, don't judge me. The Porphyrian. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful night. Carlo, why don't you take us through the Magia, the Magera? Magera? I've never said that out loud before. Questorus Knight Magera. Call her Maggie. Maggie. Questorus Knight Maggie. Questorus Knight Maggie. All right. The Magera-type knights are often used as shock assault units, reaching the most heavily defended enemy positions while shrugging off heavy weapons fire and self-repairing even devastating weapon strikes in a few minutes. To aid in this role, it's armed with a complex lightning cannon, using focused electromagnetic beams to vaporize infantry and blast part armor. That's pretty cool. It can self-repair. Is there a, a rule for this, Lavelle? In the yeah, a lot of knights can do index? that. They On a D6 um, roll at the beginning of their turn, um, if they roll a 5 or greater, they can heal 1. But that's not... Or did you? L- let me tell you something. That's not what's really great about this armor, of this particular knight. This knight is the second most expensive at... Um, this knight right here comes in at 440. But this knight base, this knight has something called Imperial Preisite. Units other than vehicles cannot claim the bonus plus one to their saving throw for being in cover. It does have the, it again has a four plus invuln against shooting attacks, a five plus invuln against melee attacks. I'm going to tell you something. I played a couple of games when I didn't remember this. Everybody that hasn't played a knight before, remember that a knight can fall back out of uh, combat, close combat and still shoot and still charge. So he can, even if he charge, you can fall back. And some there's this one um, stratagem that allows you to act like you don't have any wounds. Then you can charge whatever charge you and probably wreck it. Now, let's talk about the, um, a couple of things. The twin rad cleanser. I just like the sound of rag cleanser. That's got to leave something really clean. Assault D6. <laughs> and um, it, it hits automatically. And it always wounds on a 3 plus against Titanic and vehicles. So assault 2D6 at 9 inches. 3 damage each. It has something called a Hecaton Siege Claw. I would hope so. Which takes strength 16. Minus 4 AP. 6 damage. And I guess you can give it a Reaper Chainsword. It says it comes equipped with a lightning cannon a phase plasma fusel, and a reaper chainsword. And the, the play's fusel is a rapid fire, too. That's nothing to speak of. Strength, six, minus three AP, two damage. The lightning cannon is a heavy six, strength seven, minus AP one, um, D3 damage each. But that's going to act just like a Tesla. So every six, you're going to get, um, wow, no. Every time you make a wound roll of a six for this weapon, that hit is resolved at AP minus three instead of one. And the damage is a flat three instead of D three. Yeah, so this can clear out. This can clear out some infantry. In one of the Imperial Armor um, Masterclass books that Forge World puts out, they focus on painting one of these, and they do it in this great glossy red color. It's probably the one that's that's photographed for their website, um, but it's really really a cool looking model. And with all those special weapons on, it looks like it's super super mean and angry looking. Yeah, that claws. Yeah. Is- Interesting. It looks like it would like grab something and then just start spinning. Yeah, it's like a big egg beater. Yeah, yeah. yeah that that looks like it's <laughs> going to leave a mark. So does it work like a like a um, the thunder strike gauntlet? Can you like pick things up and throw them? It doesn't say it. So I want to say that you know we we've mentioned a couple of knights here, 
um, the Castigator. We got the Lancer, Porphyrion, the Asheron. We didn't mention the, and you know, I know this because for some reason I'm addicted to Forge World books. There's a Questorus Knight Styrix, which um, is almost like the Megara, except for it has, and I can't even say this, a Volkite Chivalreville, whatever. It's a heavy five, strength eight, D6 damage each with a 45-inch range. It looks nasty, too. It's like a giant heat vent or something in the front. What is that? Well, it's interesting. Let me get my STC out and check. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's another one I, with a claw. It's got a claw I'm, as I'm well. I'm hoarding them. It is. And, you know, it's, um, it looks like it's uh, based on the Magera. And they ju- you just swap out the gun. That's what it kind of looks like. Yeah, and it looks like it looks like you could take that claw into one of those, um, you know, grab the fuzzy animal out of the glass case game. Uh, the it's claw. like shaped a little bit differently. Yeah. So there's kind of three different knight platforms that we've talked about. Well, we haven't even talked about the third yet, but there are basically three different knight platforms. The most common one is the one that we see most regularly in 40k, which is just the imperial knight, the er- the the errant, the paladin the uh, Warden, the Crusader, and the Gallant, which are really the same chassis but with different weapons on them. Some of them have the Thunderstrike Gauntlet and the Reaper Chainsword. Some of them have the Rapid Fire Battle Cannon and the Thermal Cannon. And, the you know, there's different variations of how you could kit them out. Some of them have a Melta Gun, etc. So there's that Knight... I think you mean the Potato Gun. The Potato Gun, exactly. The, the Hot Potato Gun. gun. The, yeah. so, so there's that platform. There's the Questorus Knights, which are the Megara and the Strix, or Styrix. And then there's the Acastus platform and they're all you know they're all super different but really kind of suited for different kinds of games too at the same time we have in our notes here to talk about the armager or armager warglaive which is the new small one that was released with the uh, forgebane box set which we know lavelle has purchased i think four or five copies of that box by now to build out his necron army even further um i think he has, like a, stand- he has a standing order <laughs> So he has a standing order. So, so let, let's not let's not dive too far into the Warglaive. But what I think might be interesting here, and maybe this is common knowledge, and I just missed this post on Warhammer Community. But is the Armager variant? Is this what we're going to see when they release the new knight, the bigger knight, when the new Codex comes out, the new Knight Codex? Maybe this is like a new platform through which they're able to release more knight bodies with the ability to build a knight army in typical games right now you can field four knights and that's going to absorb all your 2000 points but now what you can do with these new armagers is you can fill more of these smaller knights and you can exert more table control so just for a bigger range of fire get more places faster that kind of thing so just think of it like this in order to bring down a knight you're going to have to focus a lot of fire and so either you're focusing your fire on your knights every turn that you're not cri- trying to cripple at least one of these knights in the knight army to bring it down, and because you're shooting at these little guys, is a turn that those big guys are coming in and wrecking you. And you're going to lose that exchange. What, what do you guys think about that comment? I think it's one of the great things about fielding a knight is that it, it does become this fire magnet. Although I'll have to say that I've had the best luck playing a knight when it becomes a fire magnet from my opponent to that knight. But I've also, and this is not to speak to any kind of, ta- of tactical acumen on my part, this is just kind of something I tried and it worked. But as a, when, I'm up, when I'm up against a knight and I don't have one, I try just to ignore it. 
and not let it become that that sponge of all my shooting for two turns, three turns before it goes down. I try to let it walk around, try to stay away from the stomps, of course, because those can be devastating, right? Stay out of its range of close combat attacks as much as possible, and just focus on objectives and other potentially more dangerous later in the game kind of units, like more elites, more fast attacky kind of stuff that might be running around around that night. You know what I mean? So I think tactically for me it's worked not to really fuss with it that much, let it kind of do its thing, but don't let it become that power draw. But when I'm playing it, it is great that it just it, it takes up two rounds of an opponent's shooting to try to take it down. So it depends on how your opponent's knight is kitted out. So if you've got a knight like my castigator, and my castigator could conceptually... Um, wreck an entire squad and charge a, uh, one of your heavy if I can get back in there. But it can definitely wreck a heavy uh, one of your uh, like a, um, a squad because the bolt cannon is, is 14 shots and not too many things. Yeah, not too many things are going to come out of that. Um, at the same time, it depends on the mix. And so the only thing that I, I, I'm putting out there is that because I saw a battle report online. I can't remember who did it where the one guy was fielding Necrons and the other guy was fielding, I think he had three knights and two armagers. And the armagers were running up and they were taking objectives um, because it was a Maelstrom of War game. But what happened was, even focusing his fire, he was damaging the armagers, but he wasn't able to really kind of get rid of it. And that's a really big deal because, you know, you, you need to get rid of or you need to cripple something to the point where it can't come back. Right. Right. You need to get down to that lowest number of uh, the most wounds to get it to that lowest rung of BS and, and uh, movement range. Yeah. How many points that's are they? I was wondering. Which one? The Armager. Um, I don't have that in front of me, but I can find out. You guys keep going. I'll look at it right now. Some more cool night stuff that we'll throw in here. That uh, 30K novel, Vengeful Spirit. One of my favorite Horus Heresy novels um, starts when the 16th Legion descends upon the night world of Molech. Uh, there is a Slaneshi serpent cult in place on the world already, and it's corrupting the house Molech. But Horus is all about it. He's, you know, he's trying to encourage that at this point. Um, we meet. There's some great characters in this book. There's some wonderful uh, moments where one of the uh, ruling house's sons is trying to bond with his knight, and you get the whole sense of how painful and how challenging that is, and there's some great descriptions of kind of the, the twitchy, unsettled nature of a, of, a, of a knight pilot in the uh, throne mechanicum. Really, really, really cool stuff. We also meet uh, one of my... I love perpetuals across all the 40k stories. We meet a really interesting perpetual here, Olivia Sirica. She once traveled with the emperor before he became the emperor. Check that out, right? Pretty dope. So she traveled with the emperor before he was the emperor, who went to Molech, and apparently, I won't spoil it again, but she's a great character, and perpetuals are always interesting to read about. We could do a whole, we should do a whole section of an episode on perpetuals, because I think their relationship to one another and their relationship to the arc of mankind from basically now, like current day, 2018 to the 41st millennium is really interesting. We should talk about that at some point. And I also have a note here to talk about the Freeblade smartphone game, which is an iOS and Android game uh, focused around these Imperial Knights. I know it's very popular. I downloaded it once. My phone at the time was like not graphically capable to play it, so it didn't play well. But it's free to play, but then you can customize and like buy bits and pieces for your knights to make them look a certain way. And I know it's very popular. Have you guys played this game, Freeblade? Yeah, I played it. It was pretty fun. It's good. What's what, what's the what's the feel of it? Um, so it's kind of a uh, like your your knight is like walking down 
the level, right? And you move through these checkpoints, kind of, right? And as you do that, you you point your weapon in the direction of where you want to shoot. So, like, orcs will come out. In the first couple levels, the orcs come out from the different sides, and you're shooting at them. They're ro- rolling up in their looted vehicles and stuff, and you have a couple different weapons you can shoot. So I think, if I remember right, you... Um, Mostly you're shooting the uh, rapid-fire battle cannon or the uh, it might be the Avenger Gatling cannon or something and you you can switch uh, Weapons like you were saying so like you'll have like your main weapon that's shooting the rapid-fire shots and then you have a um, Like a heavy hitter that you use against uh, The vehicles every now and then and that takes time to recharge. It's almost like playing like one of those um, old Terminator arcade games, kind of a thing, where your screen's moving around gotcha. and you gotta like yep. shoot some guys. So, but, so your your knight yeah. is kind of on rails going through this level, and you're just kind of controlling the point at which the direction it shoots and when it shoots. Exactly. Yep. Guys, listen. The Armager Warglaive is 227 points. That includes a heavy stubber, a Reaper chain cleaver, and a thermal spear. So you can put more than one down in a drop. The first time this unit is set up, all of its models must be placed within six inches of at least another one a mile in the unit. From that point on, each operates independently and street is a separate unit. So can you technically play nine of them by the rule of three? Since you could, you could. So you could also play that. So if you're playing a super heavy um, detachment, right, that's like five Lords of War or whatever it is, you could play three units of those and then a couple like big knights. Right. So I, you know, let me just say something. The Perfurion, I gave you a point cost, but totally mm-hmm. kitted out. It is, I hope you guys are sitting down, 866 points. <laughs> I, you know, my Castigator kitted out is, is 500 points. So you could conceivably play um, two Castigators and um, two actual squads which would give you six. I'm, I'm actually building a list right now, which would, yeah, but that takes you over the points by 366. That's 2362. So you could play two squads of, uh, but you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, you could get away with one squad of three and two. Wow, you still have 400 points left. So you could, yeah, you could tinker with this one. I, I, I'm, I'm really personally excited for the Knight Codex to come out. I, I, I think that's, I think it's going to be really, really cool, and would be really definitely encourage me to start thinking about building a Knight army. In the, uh, I have the sixth and seventh edition Knight Codices, and there's some awesome descriptive language in both of those about the, the binding process, where a, uh, you know, a potential uh, princeps is bonded to the knight and everything, and. There's some, you know, the heraldry is in these books and all this, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stoked for the uh, Eighth Edition Knight Codex to come out. I look forward to reading that. Let, let me ask you, you guys, a question because I do like the knights. However, one of the things that I like about, really, if I was going to play a knight, I would stick it into the, um, what's it called, into the Mars, because even though I haven't seen all of their, um, I haven't seen the, what's it called. I haven't seen the codex and the stratagems. Mars has some really important stratagems that you can use, specifically the stratagem that allows you to, um, what is it called? The one that allows you to act like you're on the top level. Oh, yeah, right, where you can use all your um, your canticles, when your canticles right. all operate at the highest level. But I don't. the problem is when I try to, I don't know how that would work. 
and plus you can you can add a um, somebody in there to run around repairing them. Yep. Yeah. So I have to see how that codex comes out when it finally comes out. I'm really really interested in that. We will take a short break and we'll come back and wrap up the show. That was episode 14 of Crew Shaken. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Do check us out on Facebook, although we really only post when the shows are released to Facebook. I've found myself in a moral quandary regarding Facebook, which we don't, don't need to talk about now, but we're just posting uh, when the episodes are out on Facebook and how to get them uh, at facebook.com slash crewshaken. Uh, but do follow us at crewshaken on Instagram. We share a lot of our games on Instagram, but we like to share your games too. So don't don't hesitate to send us pictures of your games and your models. Absolutely right. Yeah, more the merrier. Next episode we will record in a couple of weeks. Uh, sorry, this one took us so long to get out. We had some technical difficulties and some scheduling difficulties. Carlo is about to move into a new spot, which we're super excited about and happy for him. So congratulations, Carlo. That'll be great. By the time we record our next episode, you will be in your new house. Oh, yeah. Thank you. For Crew Shaken, I've been Tim. I'm Lavelle. And I'm Carlo. We'll see you next time. <laughs>